There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. You're listening to the best of the Tom Bernard Show.com, brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Who, me? <laughs> Well, I'd like to know if I was married to a whore piece of shit. <laughs> you could just look at her license. My her special stripe. That was amazing. Oh my gosh. Coming by sweet corn, potatoes, onions, pickles. It's not how you use them, sir. <laughs> it's really sickening that anybody would be into radio this much. It is ungoddamn believable. I think I'm going to hell. I just realized it. Thank you, Tom. You're just delicious. This is why I drink. We're here today with Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant. Michael, what's going on? You know, we keep getting phone calls, and it's interesting because people try to handle a lot of stuff on their own, or they try to talk to the adjusters, or they wait, um, and they think maybe it'll cost them money if they talk to me. And, you know, we tell them it's free to talk to us. Um, I go through what their rights are, and you know we try to help them as best we can. We don't sign everyone up. Sometimes I just give them advice, and they go from there, and then call us back later. But the key is, is that they don't know all their rights, or they're not told all the rights by the adjuster. And that's one of the things we try to make sure that they get, you know, they get that understanding, uh, so they can help themselves and their families as best they can. And the number is is eight hundred seven seven zero seven zero zero eight. Or at the website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Brad, Sean, Bryant, Michael Bryant, thank you. Seeking justice for the injured, Brad, Sean, Bryant. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of the Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Bradshaw and Bryant. Kicking off the show this week, we had Laura Wasser from her podcast, Divorce Sucks. I imagine she's right. Next on the Best of... Our listeners are unbelievable. Not, Joe and Doc got together. I grew up listening to classic rock, and now I listen to a half-rate morning show on some lame radio station hosted by this pill. Then Doc says, pill is right. Some days he's a sleeping pill. Other days he's a cyanide pill because he kills my spirit, bitch. Uh, Joe, see if you could find Shark Man and Grease Man Morning Zoo. We could listen to that. I think Tom's asleep. He's probably texting Bryant or Sprinthal. 
No time for us peons. <laughs> Unbelievable. Wow. Well. A couple of big babies. Well. It's kind of listeners I like, big babies. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Wasser. How you doing, Laura? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Marvelous. Uh, you're on Podcast One, correct? PodcastOne.com, Divorce Sucks yeah. with Laura Wasser, W-A-S-S-E-R. Uh, so, Laura, where did it all start? <laughs> oh, well, it all started uh, probably back in uh, 1968 when my parents found out that my father had passed the bar exam and decided to have celebratory sex, oh. and I was conceived. And they decided, because he passed the California bar exam, to make my initials L-A-W. So, uh. <laughs> and... and you were wondering where that was going, weren't you? No. Anyway, no, so like I, 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 I did fight being an attorney for a long time, but ultimately I succumbed. And I've been practicing family law for 25 years now. Family law is a euphemism for divorce law. And last year, uh, Podcast One came to me and said, how about you do a weekly podcast about how people get divorced, how it works, what people's experiences are. You've represented some celebrities in your practice so you can get them to come on and talk about it and so because i was also launching an online divorce website called it's over easy i figured that this would be a good way to kind of get the word out so divorce sucks either that or have breakfast it's over easy that's good i like it there you go that works for me i've never had to go through a divorce but i know some other people in the room have and mm-hmm. i i just uh like four or five times easy now gunpowder <laughs> <laughs> but it's got to be, man, i got to believe that's it's extremely emotional, isn't it? Or by the time they come to an mm-hmm. attorney, is it pretty much over already? Especially if you're attached to money. <laughs> then it's, really emo- <laughs> then it's yeah. very emotional. It's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely emotional. Part of it is, you know, losing that attachment to your spouse. But yeah. the other part of it is losing your attachment to the money. What we're trying to do is, look, it definitely sucks. It's definitely difficult. It's, but it's definitely happening. And for those to whom it is happening, we're trying to make the the legal and the financial part easier. So you can deal with the grief of having, you know, the ending of that kind of a relationship and be able to move on. So many people get swept up in the emotions of it that they end up mm-hmm. spending way too much money on attorneys because they're in the moment. And so what we're trying to do is really separate that out, let people have the ability to heal and get through what is absolutely a crappy time, but not spend a bunch of money and negative energy on the actual legal process. Oh, I, I understand what you're saying completely. I used to work in a divorce attorney's office when I was going through college and I was And you look, decided to get married. And I was looking through some of these files <laughs> hey. and some of these files would be a conference room, you know, long box full of all of this stuff. It was just like and then she threw a shrimp at me at our dinner party and embarrassed me and, and I'm like, This is what you're telling an attorney this for for seven hundred dollars an hour? You're going through, you know, the the dinner party fight, really? I mean, it was just, I mean, they would drag the stuff. It's crazy. Yes. And I think so many people, after it's over, look back and go, what was I thinking? Why did I have my attorney write a three-page letter about the shrimp throwing? (laughs) Exactly. Because you're emotional. You, you, that happens, and the problem is, and again, I, I have great colleagues, I love family law attorneys, we are all problem solvers, we're trying to get it done, but, you know, so often when people come into my office, I go, let's be really clear about this, the more you fight, 
the more money I make. And, mm-hmm. dude, I yeah. already drive a Porsche, so let's figure out a way <laughs> to get you out of this without having to write a three-page letter about the shrimp throwing incident or any... I mean, there's so many other things. Right. I, I mean, I, even, I, even extramarital affairs, which are horrible, talk to your therapist, talk to your priest, talk to your rabbi, talk to your girlfriend over a glass of Chardonnay. Don't talk to your lawyer. Right. I, I have a question for you. How? What percentage of the... Uh, cases is uh, arbitration successful. And I, and I know a lot of, of couples go that route prior to seeing an attorney. I did it myself, actually. I'm just curious as to what your experience is with arbitration. I think it's, I mean, it probably differs from state to state. In California, where I practice, we are much more mediation or arbitration oriented. And I'd say probably about 80%. I think if oh, wow. people are kind of hip to it and aware of it, it works. Because what happens is you have this opportunity to talk, air your grievances, talk about what's gone on. You're not in front of a judge. You're in front of like a neutral third party. You get that out of your system. You also kind of c- compile and exchange the financial information necessary, and you make a deal. And so what we're really trying to do at It's Over Easy and at Divorce Sucks is make that, educate people as to that as a possibility and to a different way of doing things. We call it the evolution of dissolution. And again, what struck me is I've been practicing for 25 years. Very little has changed. We're still dealing with, remember the movie Kramer versus Kramer? We're still dealing with these horrible knockdown, drag out. And again, it's not just financially taxing. It's emotionally devastating. If you can approach it from a different angle, which is, hey, this is horrible, but it's happening. How do we do this in a way that we're going to save our money and, more importantly, save our kids, having well-adjusted children that are able to go back and forth? When, when you know, my kid was in kindergarten, his dad and I were the only parents in the class that weren't living under the same roof. By fourth grade, I think 40% of the class, the parents have split yeah. up. So it's happening. Sure. How do we do it better? You know, I actually have a friend. I, uh, I've been a friend for a long time, and there was a lot of dough involved in this, and I understand that. took him 14 years to get divorced. Oh, my. 14 wow. I mean, years. isn't that crazy? Oh, it's yeah, insane. No, we've, we've seen those. You can be married like three that or four times That means somebody's doing something years. wrong. You should know. <laughs> yeah, some, somebody's doing something wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. How long were they married? Uh, for quite some time. He before they okay. filed for divorce. Yeah, I think I yeah. think at least twenty twenty five years. Wow. They were married a long time, but he, there was a lot of money involved, and that was the mm-hmm. whole problem. I think. Yeah, but here's the There's thing: the more money, money there, it should be easier with more money. Yeah, you yeah. Would think, it should right. be like, look, yeah. we've both got plenty of money. Let's move on. Yeah, Jeff exactly. Bezos yeah. got divorced in what about fifteen minutes? Fifteen yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah, what, 47 exactly. billion? Yeah. I have, I'm 30, and I already have two friends that are divorced. Really? Mm-hmm. You do? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you think that prenups help when there is a divorce? I do. I actually think prenups help people stay together, to be honest with you. And I know that, I mean, oh, look, I go. know they're not romantic. I know they're not sexy. But I think one of the things we're reading a lot about now is how, like, millennials are not getting married. Um, or millennials are getting married later, and that's why the divorce rate is re- decreasing. Um, I think that's great. I also think that millennials are having more prenups, not just wealthy millennials, but people that just they're smart and they want to know what the law is in their state and they want to know what the terms of this contract that they're entering into. And marriage is a contract. Everyone says, oh, God, I can't believe you're entering into a contract. Marriage is a contract. 
people get married and they enter into contracts for the venue and the cake and the dress and the florist and the caterer, but they never think about the most important contract, which is the contract of marriage. Find out what the law is in your state and if you are down with those rules. If you're not, then let's talk about how you opt out and what you would prefer in terms of what your financial situation is going to be, your responsibilities during marriage. There's some things you can't opt out of. You can't opt out of child support, for example, but you can certainly opt out of like a community property situation where you get married in California and automatically half of everything you earn from that day forward is half and half. You can say that doesn't work for me because I've already been doing my job for this long and I really honed my art or whatever it is, and I don't want to pay half or share half of everything I earn with the person that I'm married to. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I want to run a little experiment here, Laura, okay? The woman you were talking yes. to there is is my wife. The Catherine. woman named yeah, Catherine. I had a feeling about that. That's woman. Catherine? That's Catherine. Yes, I. Absolutely. <laughs> so I will say this, and then she can follow it up with her comment. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we've been together for 38 years, been married for 35 years. And I've never even once considered divorce. And now here's Catherine. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's so th- many times. It's Thursday. <laughs> yeah, it's Thursday, honey. So many Go times. Go forward. What do you no. mean so many times? What's that all oh, about? Oh, you've been hanging by a thread for many times. <laughs> and you, know, and you, you know those 30, times. 35 years in my world, that's quite an accomplishment. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I have a it is a hard job yeah. to be married, but it is often so worth it. But I do. I think... Obviously, you guys have found something that you, a common ground, you obviously have good communication with each other. That's so key in terms of keeping things fluid and keeping things evolving, and it's really important. I mean, I probably know about as much as marriage as I do about divorce, and I've seen so many relationships, 35 years and 38 together. That's awesome. Thank you very much. I I have another question. I had a friend that went through mediation, and she found out later that her ex was had hidden tons of assets going into mediation. What happens then? In most states, there are omitted assets. First of all, when you enter into mediation, you still have to sign exchange and, and under penalty of perjury, um, exchange information about what you each have. So if that person, her husband signed all those forms under penalty of perjury. He, one, broke the law when he said that these assets didn't exist or... We're losing you. The judge, if you come forward and say, well, he didn't tell me he had this bank account offshore, I found out later, the judge will either then give a heavy, heavy penalty to the person that omitted the assets. I've seen instances where the judge awarded the entire asset, not just half of it, Ooh. to the other spouse. So not so worth lying. No, no. Not worth lying. Yeah. Not worth lying. And again, these days more than ever, it's very hard to hide assets. Because yeah, there's this sure. electronic footprint that you have of everything. I mean, back right. in the day when everything was in like a shoebox, receipts. But now you can usually see everything that's come out over time. And if a big chunk of money was supposed to come in and didn't show up or got transferred, you see that. Oh, that's good because, I mean, she was so exhausted by the whole thing. She was just, by the time they were divorced, she was just so exhausted. I don't even think she cared anymore, to tell you the truth. It's just like, I can't even deal with this person one more day in my life. Yeah. 
So we got away with it. Exactly. After a certain period of time, you're just like, I'm so done. I want to, I'm out. And that's why I feel like if you start from a point of ex, from education, understanding, and really wanting to get into it, you have to be the master of your own destiny. And hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't go on for that long. Because, yeah, it does. It taps you out. Because we've got a couple in here that are going to be married in October. Mm-hmm. They're fiancés, and they're right here. So do you have any, what's, what's the best advice? Get a prenup? <laughs> 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 Even if you don't have a prenup, because they're not for everybody, I would have some of the conversations that would go into having a prenup. What do you? What are each of your expectations after you get married? Um, what? what how much you're going to put away every year for retirement? Mm-hmm. Have you discussed what happens with your? Elderly parents, are they going to come live with you? Or are you going to put them in assisted living? No. What do you think is going to happen if you have kids? <laughs> is somebody going to go? Are you both going back to work? Some of these things, sit down, map through them, plan them out, and really talk about them. And the other thing I would say is while you guys are madly in love and have stars in your eyes, figure out a great way to communicate so that when things aren't good, and inevitably, um, as Tom and Catherine will tell you, that sometimes they won't be good, you have a really good ability and language to speak with each other and communicate with each other. Get that down while things are good. And I think that you will probably do great. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful advice. Mm -hmm. Because communication is like 90% of a marriage, right? Yes. Dan and I took, my husband and I took a premarital counseling class at the church we got married in. And we had to take a quiz and we found out that he is an internal processor and I'm an external processor which makes can make things yeah. hard but like learning that ahead of time was huge just yes. knowing that like this is how he processes things he can't talk and talk and talk but I have to talk and talk and talk hmm. yeah I'm the same way yeah. I like to purge yep. everything so the best way to do it is just communicate with him say look I'm not ready yeah. to talk about this yeah, right exactly. now exactly give me yeah, my time, mm-hmm. and then I will come to you when I'm ready. And if you're yeah. Tom Bernard, you say, "Well, I am ready to talk right <laughs> <Yeah>. now." <laughs> Do you like it or not? There will be talking. <laughs> but isn't it isn't it amazing that they don't make you take those premarital classes? Like I remember yeah. that scene in Parenthood oh, where Keanu Reeves says, "You know, you need a license to drive, you need mm-hmm. a license to fish, yep. but any guy can become a parent." It's the same to get married. I mean, you need a marriage license, but they don't put you through any hoops oh, to get it. It's, hey, like, you can get like huge. 25 so cents many, off. So many people would stay married. <laughs> so, Laura, yeah. Laura, do you, do you wow. have to get going? Do you yes. have time to stick around? Oh, you do have to get going? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'd love to have you on again to talk about this, because apparently my wife loves to talk to divorce attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura. She's, yeah, just exploring, she's just exploring her options. <laughs> okay. 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 I see the notebook. Podcast one, Divorce Sucks, Laura Wasser, W-A-S-S-E-R. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, guys. Bye. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. Wasser on the best of. Coming up next on a, well, equally depressing note, Anita Anand calls in to discuss her book full of intrigue, revenge, murder. Next on the best of.
live. I love this song. I know, it's a great song. I know. Uh, the book, The Patient Assassin, A True Tale of Massacre, Revenge, and India's Quest for Independence. Anita, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Jack. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you very much. The dramatic true story of a celebrated young survivor of a 1919 British massacre in India and his ferocious uh, 20-year campaign of revenge that made him a hero to hundreds of millions and spawned a classic legend. That's about as far as I want to read into it, Anita, because I want to hear your take on the entire thing, The Patient Assassin. Sure. Well, as you quite rightly say, the the start, the seed of all of this is a terrible massacre that happened in India in 1919, so 100 years ago. The British were still in charge. And there was a cry coming from the Indians, which I guess you Americans are all too familiar with, which was no taxation without representation. Indians were asking for a bit more of a voice in their affairs. And this was seen as an affront. This was seen as a challenge to British rule. And so they were cracking down and cracking down hard. Um, A brigadier general drove an armed convoy to this walled garden in the north of India in a city called Amritsar. He drove. He would have taken his machine gun-mounted cars in if the entrance was wide enough, but there was only one entrance, and it was so narrow, three men abreast couldn't come through it. Ooh. He orders 50 riflemen in. He issues no warning, and he tells them to fire on 20,000 unarmed men, women, and children. And they are shot like fish in a barrel. They can't get out. They're unarmed. They are civilians, and their bodies pile up in in pyramids by the walls as they're desperate to try and get out. There's one well in the middle of the garden and people throw their loved ones in to try and get away from this hail of bullets. And in India, there's this this legend that everybody knows. It's unknown beyond India of a young orphan, low caste, who has nothing to his name, but he is trapped in that garden. He gets winged by a bullet. And the British compound this atrocity by declaring a curfew that night so nobody can come in and give medical aid to the people who are bleeding out all night and no one can get the bodies out. And this young man has to stay in that garden all night, listening to the wailing, turning into whimpering, turning into silence around him. And he scoops up a handful of earth as the first rays of sun hit the ground, and it's heavy with blood, and he smears it across his head, and he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I am going to kill the men who did this with as little mercy as they've shown my people. And he is the patient assassin, Uzun Singh, and it is his story about a 20-year transformation, how he turns himself into the perfect assassin who can walk into a hall in London in 1940 and carry out his vengeance. That is what an amazing story. This. Why is it, because I've never heard this before, is, is this a well-known story? Well, it's, it's one of those peculiar things that it is, it is in the DNA of the north of India. Um, right, I mean, I right. was born... In, in Britain, uh, my name, Anand, means joy, and my, it will give you an indication that, that actually my family comes from the north of India. They come from Punjab, this, this province. So in India, this is known. Uh, Udham Singh, the avenging angel, is like a hero in India. His face has been on stamps. Streets are named after him. But in Britain, he's completely unknown. But then Britain also doesn't like to remember the massacre. You know, it, sure. it just has to be poked right. and prodded into remembering. Um, you know, if, if things were left to um, the way they have been in the past, all that the Raj would mean is sort of polo matches with Maharajas and elephant hunts. But this ugly side of things is never mentioned. So um, in writing this book, I had to uncover documents that have been buried for 
over a hundred years. You know, so many files that have top secret written on them, things that needed freedom of information requests to kind of prize them out of out of the hands of archives. And you piece together, um, I don't know whether you guys are familiar with Tom Ripley, you know, um, this, yep. this fictional character who, well, he is the real deal. He's the real Ripley because he has nothing. He knows nothing. He's uneducated. He's low caste, which, I mean, it may not mean much these days and particularly in America, but in, in a country where the native population were deemed to be less than human or less than white human, the lower castes were right at the bottom, and he is at the bottom. Hardly educated, no money, an orphan, low caste. How is he going to turn himself into a man who can attack and kill the most powerful people in the Raj? Well, he does it by following this slipstream, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Whoever hates the British as much as he does, he will learn from them. And one of his major universities that teaches him his craft happens to be America. Um, he travels to the United States, where there are lots of dissident Indians who've been forced to flee. They, they gather around California, around Stockton in particular. Mm, okay. And he learns from them. He learns how to travel on forced passports, to get hold of guns, to shoot straight. He goes to Russia. He learns from the communists. He goes to Germany, where Hitler is starting to ascend. He will learn from anyone who will teach him. And in America, actually, he gets, a really, he gets his only chance in life to be happy. Uh, he, he finds a, he, he dreams the American dream for a while. He's there for a few years. You know, he finds a wife. He settles down. He has two children. But he, you know, the fable, the princess and the pea, mm. always like a little pea under his mattress is this, this, this vow that he made that he would get revenge. And it stops him. He jettisons his wife and his children and he just keeps going till he can get to London, till he can get close, until he can do what he needs to do. It is an amazing story because, first of all, we sit here uh, and, of course, you, you, Talk about Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong allowing millions and millions of people to die, and in this case, uh, Michael O'Dwyer. I don't, so he he must have considered them less than human. I, I assume. Yeah, he he did. Uh, you know, he loved India, but he loved the, the British bits of India. As far as the native population, the the actual brown skinned Indians were concerned, he was he categorized them almost like a botanist categorizes poisonous species and he generalized about them you know and the type of indian he hated most of all was the type that was represented by men like gandhi who were educated who were high caste educated had traveled to britain and had learned how to speak and walk and talk mm -hmm. in the same way as he and his compatriots and he found them to be upstarts he found them to be ungrateful he found them to be reaching beyond their station so what happens in 1919, up till that point, all men like Gandhi are asking for is just give us some voice. They're not asking the British to leave, and they're not asking for control. Mm -hmm. They're just saying, give us some voice in our future. You know, our 1919, that moment in 1919, that massacre, I think is as pivotal as an incident that happened in your country in Boston when people tipped tea over into right. the harbor. Right. Because people just said, no more. You've got to go now. You've just got to get out. That makes total sense to me, by the way. It's like, yeah, okay, you just hang in there, and we're going to do nothing for you, and you're going to take it. Uh, human beings are generally not going to deal with that kind of thing well. Um, you know, the amazing thing is when you look at that whole situation, although it's worked in Asia for many, many years, 
particularly in Japan, places like that. Your station is very important, and there's, at least that I know of, there's not a whole lot of violence based in that. A lot of people do believe in, you know, being above or below your station and all the rest of it. Uh, It's worked in other countries. It doesn't seem to work in Europe or the United States or, you know, places like that. I, I just, you know, this we kind of need to go through that right now in America because of our past history with slavery and all the rest of it. Some people have decided, and these are white people, by the way, that are doing this. They decided because of slavery 200 years ago, the 400, 500, 600 years ago, that now white men are evil. It's like these white men had nothing to do with slavery. You can't just point your finger at them because they're the same color and gender as the people who did do it. It doesn't make any sense to us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot that has been said about um, an apology for this, and and I have to tell you, I have a, I always have a personal connection to the story because um, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but my grandfather was in the garden on the day of the massacre. Oh, really? And yeah, and by some quirk, you know, just stupid dumb luck. He leaves the garden and leaves his two friends behind and says, mm. look, I'm just going to go to the market. I've got to do... He was, he was from out of town. It wasn't political. It was on the biggest festival day of the year. So he, like many hundreds and thousands of others, had poured into the city to give thanks to the Golden Temple, which is the great landmark in Amritsar. Mm. And he uh, leaves his friends and he says, look, I'll be back. Just keep my food. Just don't eat all of it. I'll be back in a few minutes. He passes the armed column in the street, goes to the market, and he only knows what's happened when the, the sound of screaming reaches him in the market. Oh, God. And he rushes back. He can't get in because of the curfew, and he has to wait till morning until he can find out that both of his friends are dead. Um, and that really affected him. You know, he lived with survivor's guilt. For somebody like Udham Singh, you know, this massacre was pivotal and it turned him into a murderer. It turned him into an assassin. It turned mm-hmm. him into somebody who wanted to, you know, the equalizer. So my grandfather, you know, we call it PTSD now, but they didn't have a name for it then. Uh, he went blind very early in life and he used to rage against anyone who gave him any sympathy. He said, look, do not feel sorry for me. God gave me my life that day. It's only right he takes the light from my eyes. So, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm in this story. This story is my yeah, story yeah. as well. And, and pe- people ask me, you know, they say, do you want an apology? And there's been much made of an apology. Um, and it's an odd thing. I'll share a story with you very quickly. But I, somebody gave me the number for the brigadier general who marched his soldiers in an open fire uh, for his granddaughter and said, look, you know, do you want to talk to her? And I said, actually, no, I really don't. Not until I finish the book, because if I like her, it's going to mm-hmm. change the way I write about yeah, it. And if true. I don't like her, it'll yeah. change the way. Yep. So I waited until I handed in the last draft, and then I rang her up, and I said, look, um, and I, I, I'm a radio uh, presenter here. And I said, look, my, I'm Anita Anand. And she said, oh, I know you from the radio. I said, oh, that's not why I'm ringing. I'm ringing because your grandfather tried to kill my grandfather. Do you want a cup of tea? And uh, we met, and we talked for two hours, and she was completely unrepentant about what he had done oh, and, and really? believed that it was yeah it was it was a, the hardest two hours i think of my life and in, in the middle of it and i did like it she's a very charismatic woman and in the middle of it i i you know she said what do you want from me do you want me to apologize and i said well and i didn't know what i wanted until that moment i thought actually no i don't it means nothing my grandfather's dead his friends are dead even longer it doesn't mean anything but what i want i think for my children is for the story to be told mm-hmm. and for her to understand. And I said, look, I really, I think one thing I would like from you, not an apology, but I'd like you to come with me. 
and come and see the garden and come and see what happened for, for yourself. And so, you know, to her credit, she said, I will come. So, you know, that's something, that's another difficult horizon that we will cross at some point in the near future, I hope. That's an amazing story. So you, you think you actually, she actually will show and go with you? Yeah, I think she will. I mean, I think, you know, it, was, it is challenging. It is a, it's a challenging thing to accept. And, you know, you're, you're talking about collective guilt. You know, there's also collective denial. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was trying to show her and tell her about documents that exist, documents, eyewitnesses from her, you know, her ancestors' side from an inquiry that took place in 1920 and saying, look, you know, these were unarmed. You know, the youngest victim of this massacre, the reason it caused this kind of rage that, you know, then motivates the patient assassin to devote 20 years of his life to, to changing who he is, to everything directed into, into killing somebody, to, mm-hmm. to, you know, even this score. And I was trying to, to tell her, you know, look, the youngest victim was eight months old. The oldest victim was 80 years old. Oh, you know, how can you imagine that they are guilty of anything um and and so i think you know there's denial and there's education so you know to come back in a very circuitous way i didn't need an apology and i didn't hold her responsible but what i do want is for people to know the truth that's what i want see it's a wonderful thing and it's wonderful that you don't need an apology from her um because some people, I, I, I don't know why, but they absolutely need you to apologize and, and basically grovel when this had nothing to do with her. And you realize that it would be nice to have an apology because she's a descendant, but you're not, you know, trashing her all over the uh, all over the planet. It seems to me you're doing your best to try to understand and try to get along and all you want is an apology. And I, I think that's only right. It's, it's, an ex, it's, it's an acceptance of truth. Yep. I think that's what matters. You know, you know, there's that old saying that if you don't learn from history, you're cursed to repeat again and again and again. And I know, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't by any means represent um, all the people who have been touched by this. I know in India there are a great number of people who feel this hurt deeply still. You know, it is, it is, a, it is a wound. It is, it's not so long ago. Look, I mean... You know, we're not talking ancient history. We've just here in Britain, and I'm sure you have mm-hmm. too, um, commemorated the end of World War One. You know, right. centenary. We make a big deal of that. This is, you know, not a long time ago, and yet this also happened a hundred years ago. Yeah. This is also not such a long time ago. So it would be rather marvellous to say, you know what, um, this did happen. And to, to 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 some Indians, I know they would like to have some kind of you know, acknowledgement on a, on a senior level, not from the British people. And even with them saying, actually, the man, the, the patient assassin, he is, uh, he's eventually, you know, dragged into court for what he, what he did. And what he did was, by the way, completely audacious. The man turns into, you know, almost a ghost and uses everything he's ever learned for this one moment in 1940 when Britain is in the grip of World War II, you know, when there should be such a heightened sense of security, he walks into a hall filled with the great and the good of the Raj, including the Secretary of State for India, and this man, Michael O'Dwyer, and comes face to face with him for the first time, this man he's been obsessed with for 20 years. Uh, But, you know, I won't tell you what happens. No, no, don't do that. Operatic, (laughs) you know. But, you know, he, he, he he does when he's on trial. He does actually say, I have nothing against the British people. I have nothing against the working man. This is not about that, but this is about tyranny. Um, mm. And that's, you know, that's what he, what he said, even then in the heat of all of that. 
Anita Anada. It's A N A D A. The book is called The Patient Assess. Oh, no, it's Anita Anand, my lovely. It's Anand, A-N-A-N-D. I think you've got a typo. Yeah, the that calendar's would be quite got a mouthful. Oh, the calendar has a typo. <laughs> yeah. There's an A at the end of it, so it's Anand. Yeah, no, that's I, I don't deserve the extra vowel. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> I will take your vowel away. Anita, thank you so much. The Patient Assassin, A True Tale of Massacre, Revenge, and India's Quest for Independence. Anita, thank you very much. Great, great subject. A pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. That was Anita Anand on the best of. Coming up next, closing out the show, we're opening up the old vault. All the way back to episode 274 with Bob Enfield, co-founder of Tommy Bahama. Next on the best of. So we won't mention the uh, the friend's name, but uh, Bob Enfield walks in. Uh, my back was turned to the front door, so Bob and Lori walk in. And he said, oh, I think your guests are here. I said, oh, good. So I turned around and he said, so who's your guest today? And I said, you know, Bob and Lori, blah, 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 the whole deal with the co-founder of Tommy Bahama, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, I was going to go out on a date last night. Couldn't find a... Uh, a shirt that fits, so I had to go out and buy a brand new Tommy Bahama shirt. <laughs> because, thanks for your help, Don. That was great. Ian. He's I'm very busy. busy. He's, got his, new, he's got his new. He's got his new thingy. Oh, already? <clears throat> got his new iPad with his little keyboard. <laughs> Look at him. Start going <laughs> Look at him over there, all high tech. <laughs> Are you wearing a Tommy Bahama shirt? Yes, I think it is. Yeah, Everybody's always wearing a Tommy is. Bahama. Yeah. You suck up. <laughs> I didn't even know Bob was going he to be didn't here. Know. I literally didn't wear one because that's all I wear are <laughs> Enfielder shirts. Sure. That's yeah. all I wear. Yeah. So I wore a T-shirt. And, just to... and, and Seminole shirts. Yes, and, yes, and Seminole shirts too. Yeah. Uh, today I went to uh, went to uh, Whole Foods mm-hmm. and wearing a Seminole T-shirt with a Mayaku Indian hat. They were looking at me like, you shouldn't be here. You don't fit in. <laughs> you don't fit. You're not one of us. You'll say, never fit in. Did you say, do you have maize? <laughs> Pardon me, do you have maize? And they would say, right here, sir, $12 okay, a pound. It's right down next to the wild <laughs> rice. Hey, I, I put on Facebook that um, Bob Enfield was going to be on today, and Luth Lorden, she said that uh, she wants to see a Tommy Barnada. Oh, boy. Oh, Line nice. with Minnesota, anyway. Minnesota motifs. What do you anyway. think? What do you think? That plays. <laughs> you like it? Yeah, that, there's room for that. <laughs> have to have a little Zuba sort of tribute. He wore those nonstop Bob's got for the lingo, too. Years. Bob says, he does that like plays. <laughs> oh, he's that, always saying yeah, things like that. that'll play. That'll play in that space. Honestly, Andy, would you ask Sean about this for me, please? Alex, hand that to Andy. 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 So let, me, let me get my hands on it so I can be a pet. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> Don <laughs> Shelby contributes something. Ask him what. Uh, if it's scheduled. Everything's scheduled yes. except for they changed the 415 well, in spot. I do not see it up there anywhere. I'll ask. Oh. Thank you. Let, let well, me there's know. a new copy coming in. 
No, that's it's being Gillette. written. No, there's one being written right no, now. No, no, it's Gillette. That's oh, the one sorry. I just got. Okay. Right. That's how we all said. That's one great thing about podcasts is you don't have to do anything like, you know, like it's professional. Plan. Like plan. <laughs> uh, I was just going to run quick. So Bob Enfield's here. And Lori, I don't even know if you go. What's, oh, yeah. The, Lori you go Enfield. by Enfield. Yeah, okay, good. I just didn't know because Catherine refused. I see. Well, look what I've right. got here. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Would you want to be associated with this character? So it is scheduled. I have to do everything on the fly around here. Yeah, it should be. Okay, you want me to do it? You want forty-five first, or you want me to do it four fifteen second? Four fifteen second. Okay, and then and then the one that's four fifteen second now should go to third. Third. Mike just. No, took we're not running three spots in a row. No way. Okay, See, all right. No, we'll Mike from Blaine one. just took another hit off the bong because <laughs> of this conversation he here. Well, again, <laughs> things. Listen, oh, we, I, well, I could probably we could probably announce that for the first time in the history of the Tom Bernard podcast, we we oversold an hour. <laughs> <laughs> we oversold. We did. We oversold. What's well, Do you think it's something we should talk about on on the podcast, Sean? That no one's ever attempted this venture before <coughs> in history, and it's going very well. We've no about one's. That a lot on no the one's ever podcast. Let's do that when we don't have these nice guests around. No, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, we, we and Bob knows that Bob and I talk all the time about yeah. business and things like that, and Rocky Patel cigars and golf. And where the hell's my free shirt then? <laughs> Jeff Jeff Richter's wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me get these things in order then. Okay, we got the. All right, Andy. So you know not to run. Should we talk about something interesting? Yeah, when do I? <laughs> this is thrilling. What do you mean? I look. I looked up the schedule and I didn't see something scheduled. I have to do everything. That's all I'm telling you. <laughs> well, you don't it's have all to you do tell the yourself. Ted Skyler do does the news for you. You don't have to do it. <sighs> yes, you can relax. I, I do want to mention in the news. So did I make it clear, Bob M. Phil and Lori M. Phil, are <laughs> co- <laughs> co-founder of Tommy Bahama. It's mayhem, I tell and, you. And, uh, it's going to be a fast. Oh, we have to get moving because you have to leave here in 35 minutes. Are you going to do the news? I can do uh, brief headlines. I just like to point out yes. the greatest speeches ever made. Queen Elizabeth, her, her speech, uh, Patrick Henry, he's in there, now famous for having a high school in North Minneapolis. Sojourner Truth, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Abraham Lincoln, that ah, was kind of boring. Oh, the second inaugural, that was great. Susan B. Anthony, by the way, I have never seen a picture, I have never seen a, this picture of Susan B. Anthony before. <laughs> Are you sure that's not Anthony B. Susan? Because <laughs> Susan B. Anthony, all right, she'd be a lot Let's of guys. Let's not pick on world icons. Yeah. That, that picture was taken on a windy day. <laughs> well, hey, you know, Susan B. Anthony, you goddamn right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Don, right. why do you encourage him? Bob, I will yeah. tell you, you know, you've known Don forever, right? Yeah. We have fun. The worst combination in the history of broadcasting was the two of us together it was it's terrible it's really bad i, I say dirty words a lot a lot on, a this, uh, podcast. on the podcast on the podcast on the podcast you can you can say dirty words <laughs> and so i don't want you to say any leave it to me so and Laurie, i won't know that you've done it because i don't hear very well so. <laughs> well there you go well good well why don't you go fuck yourself <laughs> well well, I knew it was coming. There it is. Did he say go fuck my <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, Just for fun. Well, no, I don't know. It's always just a fun good time. It's like dinner conversation. <laughs> he asked Lori. He looks at Lori and goes, did he just say go fuck myself? 
Yes. She went, yeah. Well, I suppose you edit the content before this is No, no. 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 <laughs> no, we do not. Hell no. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, yes. The, so, Bob, I've known you, what, for 20 years, something like that? Easy. Yeah, 24. 25. From golfing? Yeah, 24, 25. Is that why? Maybe. Yes, of course. Bob was uh, was in a group. Uh, Richard D'Amico was always there. Uh, Paul Majors pretty much. Yeah, Paul was a lot there. Of time. I was trying to think who else used to play. Passel would play Bad once Passel in a while. Once in a while, that's right. He would be in there. But So Bob and I have been talking about business stuff for a quarter of a century now. And that was before you started Tommy Bahama when? 1991. Oh, so that's when, okay. when we started the, the company. So it was, yeah, like three years before you even started Tommy Bahama that I met you. Mm-hmm. Because I think, uh, remember Hypercolor? Yes, you had that weird Whoa. <laughs> <Huh>? stuff. <laughs> that, that's a blast from the past. Absolutely. You wore Hypercolor? I, no, I believe They, they I didn't be- have one in 2XB, so I, see. I did not wear Hypercolor. I think you had some shorts. I don't know if I got them. I got them from Bob. I, I I, maybe that. they were prototypes. Actually, I'm not so sure that Hypercolor <laughs> wouldn't work over again in this market. Well, no, I agree. Because nobody's seen it for 25 years. That's true. It would be mm. new. Yeah, don't tell anybody that, though, huh? That's <laughs> <laughs> out of the bag. The, oh, wait, we can edit this. The dye stuffs were really hard to work with, though. Be, for every hundred we made, we had to throw 50 away. The, oh. The, but if you have a shirt that's purple and you blow on it and the shirt turns pink, mm-hmm. you know, the, those dye stuffs are hard to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> I could see that. I would yeah. guess uh, today that <laughs> some credible source would look at this and say, people can't wear this. This will take their skin off. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> that's probably not a good. Uh, no, that's no, a, prob- I do, probably not a good comeback. I do remember you the first time you showed it to me, though, and it was like 25 years ago. The, the shirt would actually change color with your body heat. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Then he comes a couple years later. He goes, I got this thing, Tommy Bahama. I said, no, it's Bernard, not Bahama. It's Tommy Bernard. He goes, no, I got this better. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, he wants this. Bob Enfield wants this episode called Tommy and Tommy. Tommy B and Tommy B. (laughs) For our golf outing. (laughs) For the golf outing. Right. Exactly. Uh, Where do we start with with Tommy Bahama? Because you were, were you still in the Butler Square building then? No. No, I don't and, think so. Uh, I I can't remember. Oh, yeah, we we went to uh, Eleven South Twelfth Street, that yes. that, that little yep. brownstone, mm-hmm. and uh, my wife and Renee Sterno, Renee Sterno were, yeah. were business partners and had the little office on the corner. He still does, I think. He, he I believe he's still there, and then uh, that pizza joint. That became Buka. Yeah, became Buka de Beppo. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. oh, they opened in the basement. Yeah. So it was a kind of a interesting presentation you'd make in that showroom. You know, you you could hear people crying next door. <laughs> and then, then they'd start baking dough. Renee Sterno is a, is a psychologist, in case anybody. Probably the best. No. One of the best ever. Yes, he is. Tremendous man. He's helped a lot of people. He certainly has. He's a, he's a tremendous guy. I don't want to ask any sensitive questions, but but uh, Bob is is Tommy Bahama still alive? Because I uh, I didn't get a chance to meet him, and uh, <laughs> I never had him on my show. So um, tell me a little bit about Tommy. 
Uh, he's alive and well in my mind. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff alive and well in your mind. I'll tell Which you that. Explains the psychiatrist well. friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lori, do you believe, do you believe the well part? Alive? Yes. I don't know about well. No, not well. No. <laughs> alive. And in your mind, for sure. Well, you know, and all that. He uh, wants to know about Tommy. Yeah, he he, uh, he was born and raised uh, in the Bahamas, obviously. Um, his, his parents owned a coconut plantation, and uh, they were uh, at the time had both passed away, uh, and Tommy inherited the plantation and the island, uh, and. This was part of his lifestyle. This is uh, living on an island is what he did every day. And after after they they were gone, he went up to the big house. We'll call it the plantation house, uh-huh. and covered up all the furniture and the pianos and stuff with dust cloths, because uh, down near the water, there was a little boathouse with an apartment above it, and that more fit his lifestyle so he went down to the boathouse and lived in uh, the apartment up on top and he had uh, two cars on the island he he had an old Mercedes SL that was in great shape and he'd use that to run into town on the weekends and he had a 73 Volkswagen Bug and he used that for he had uh, two surfboards and a half a dozen casting rods in the back of it and he'd had the top open so often that it wouldn't close anymore. So he'd let half the air out of the tires, and every morning when he'd get up, uh, he'd decide if he was going to go east on the beach or west on the beach, and he'd get into the Volkswagen and drive down the beach for a mile or two and surf cast. You need a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) You really do. (laughs) So, Lori, he sits around at home and makes his shit up, doesn't he? He does. And Don, the story how, how changes a little bit each time. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the Bahamas to to seek him out. I looked all over for him. He was in a size medium. Did you look for that? <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, it's a good size medium. It's wonderful size medium. As a matter of fact, I should point out. And uh, Bella, what are you doing? I don't Bella's know. on the move. Bella, the She's pod dog, the is on the move. Be wary. Um, well, the name fits the the. The clothes perfectly because uh, I can go online and go into a store, uh, my size, you know, type in my size on the internet, tell them my size. It fits perfectly. And I can tell you this. Metafast ads pop right up. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't very nice. You're going down a size, (laughs) by the way. So you'll have to type in a new size. Really? I he's couldn't not, help it. He's not going to talk to you for two days <laughs> now. I hope Can they I... like those jokes on the moon. <laughs> oh, Zoom. Mom. That's where you're going. Mom. Just start Sorry. calling her Alice. Just from just now Alice. That's right. It, don't say it, Alice. <laughs> don't say it, Alice. <laughs> Alice is the biggest thing I've ever gotten into. The biggest thing you've ever gotten into are your pants. <laughs> she was the greatest. <laughs> And, and people, for people who do not know Catherine and me, we are absolutely Ralph and Alice. It, we really are. There's no doubt about that. A lot of times. Baby in the greatest every night. In any case. All right, after that uh, knife uh, removed from my back. Mom's saucy today. Watch out As for her. As an example. I just came out. 
<laughs> we wandered in a few years ago to a Valentino store in Las Vegas. We go out and do two shows in Las Vegas every year. And we go into Valentino. And I talked to you about this. As a matter of fact, I called you and talked to you about this. You probably don't even remember. <clears throat> I walk in, and Catherine said, you should buy a Valentino sport coat. And I said, yeah, okay. So Since he said, owns zero sport coats. I had three. Had two. <laughs> it's or very fancy. Three. Um, <laughs> zero. So they said, what size sport coat do you wear? And I said, 56 long. Right? And they said, okay, well, that's good. They get a 56 long. They hold it up. <laughs> I got up to my mid, like, forearm. Mid forearm. And my hand wouldn't go any further into the yeah. sport coat. It was like 52 <laughs> centimeters, I'm pretty sure. And that's very what Bob, tiny. I called Bob. I said, Bob, what the hell? He goes, no, they don't, it's not an inch deal. It's like, what is it? It's like. Centimeters? What is it? It's European sizing. Yeah. Holy crap. There is n- I couldn't have worn that thing it was when like I was a 36 11. short. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a 36 short. Well, how the hell could you not look at me as a salesperson and go, no, you're yeah, not. You're, not. you're buying long. it for your child. Yes, exactly. I was thinking that. Like, how did the person, like, oh, okay. Is this for a gift, sir? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. How did store, or I brand to brand store to store, how do they, how, how, how do they get so far off the mark? And I understand Tommy Bahama was made with a very specific buyer in mind. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's made for everybody. It is. It's made for everybody. And what was true 10 or 12 years ago when we were still into what I'll call vanity sizing. That <laughs> medium. Do not spit okay. out oh, that's drink at me. That <laughs> almost came out on that one. He almost Vanity's paid me back a, for that. <laughs> Thanks, a, a lot of that has diminished over the last 10 or 12 years. <laughs> okay. You know, the, the, the specs have come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the thighs have come in. The sleeves are uh, much it. more tapered than they were, uh, you know, back in the day. But back in the day, the, the driver for the – the way the whole world saw the company was we were a floral camp shirt. Right, mm-hmm. right. That, no, that's right. Yeah. Right. What nobody ever understood is that was if, if a store bought a hundred units from us, that was six units of the hundred. But that was what went in the window because oh, yeah. that was the, that that was the, the speaker for them. Okay. So it was never about camp shirts. It was always about the silk pant and the silk short and right. the silk blazer and. You know components that people bought and wore for a long time, mm-hmm. but the camp shirt was the driver. Right, it was kind of like a high end Aloha shirt. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> that yeah. told the life is one long weekend story better than right. mm-hmm. silk pants. Right. You know, right. you got to have that in the window, or they wouldn't get it. I'm still striving for that. By the way, just one day to be a weekend that would be good. There, there was a uh, every five years they hold a convention at uh, at the uh, big coliseums. Here in town, and uh, fifty thousand recovering alcoholics and uh, prescription drug abusers, whatever—they're all recovering. About half the they, people at this day. <laughs> <laughs> fifty thousand show up, and so I was a speaker of one of them, and I was walking across and was in Hilton Hotel taking the escalator up, and a kid followed me, about uh, twenty-one years old. Mister Shelby, Mister Shelby, uh, can you stop for a moment? And I got to the top of the landing <clears throat> as we're going to the Skyway, and he said. Uh, uh, I wanted to say something. Are you going over to the, over to the Jamboree? And I said, yeah. And he said, I, I want to be there. And I want to tell you that uh, I've got uh, 18 months today. And I want to tell you that you're responsible for my sobriety. Oh, oh. 
And that's what I needed to hear, you know, because you need that pompous, bag, <laughs> egotist thing triggered right there. So, boom, the buttons were all pressed. and went, thank you very much, oh, uh, son. I hope you, you know. And he went, yeah, I thought after I saw you on television, I figured if an asshole like him can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> and like, Thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you for putting that extra message in. That's today, great. now, um, matter of fact, it's five months today. As a matter of fact, good for I, you. Congratulations. I went on the air and talked about the fact that I needed to go and you know seek help for my anger and when I would drink, I'd threaten to kill people, things like that, <laughs> including me, <clears throat> Bob, Lori. <laughs> He threatened to kill me. Yeah, that's not good. No. He's making that shit up. Actually, he's not. But anyway, <laughs> so I go on the air and say, I, yeah, I just want to be public about this because maybe it'll help somebody else. Maybe it won't. But I just there, there's no stigma here. People go through problems, and if you take care of them, that's a great thing. So I'm not going to hide this. And everybody, of course, said, well, it had to be court-ordered. No, it was not court-ordered. <laughs> anyway, says. so I get off the air, <laughs> and... Uh, I called you, I think. Yes. Yeah, I called you. <laughs> and he answers the phone this way. It goes, ring, ring. What the fuck did you do? <laughs> Ta-da. So I'm just here to tell you very quickly, and Don talks about it all the time, uh, yeah, I didn't even realize it's been five months today, and just a, it was a really good decision for me. Because awesome. I still get pissed off every day, but I don't threaten to kill people anymore. <laughs> That's the good news. That's progress. Well, yeah. when Bob and Lori got here, I said, does anyone ever do anything they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it? They, no. Uh, never. <laughs> no reason to no, kill never. them, but... <laughs> That's, yeah. a, That's an unreasonable them. expectation, in my no. opinion. Yeah. Right. Now, we've already talked about the fact... That Tommy Bahama, the great company that it is, huge. What I saw in the paper, five hundred million dollar company. Mm-hmm. I also saw Tintinabulation, which I was very proud of you. <laughs> He's my friend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. Um, but let's talk about what you and Lori do together for Open Arms. Is it's pretty spectacular. Although Lori stiffed us at the dinner. I did. <clears throat> no, you didn't stiff us. Dinner. You didn't. Uh, let's talk about Open Arms because that's one of the big reasons I want you guys to come down here because it's it's a pretty spectacular place. First of all, yeah. I thought it was at the you know the Chambers Hotel for Christ's sake. What a nice place! It's a beautiful building, um, and had I had you guys down three years prior to that, <laughs> you would have said this is really a dump. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. It was at an old converted gas station, I think, on Bloomington Avenue, mm-hmm. and we probably had a third of uh, the space to work with that we uh, had today. I think it's a tenth of the space. A tenth? Oh, Lord. We really? we were smashed into this little... <clears throat> it, it worked, but it was getting really ugly. Why you pick up on some of this because you're... you're, you're Closer to the facts and figures than I am. So my 80... You know what we started with and what, what where we're at today. My 80-year-old mother, my 80-something, she won't tell us, your old sister-in-law, and uh, my sister <laughs> and I went every week, and then I went again on a Tuesdays, too, for it's been five years. No, but we work in the kitchen, mm-hmm. so you do a two-hour right, shift. Right. And um, that crew of people that are staff, there's a very few staff, mostly volunteers, mm-hmm. like I think 900 they come and go and deliver and make food. And uh, 
there was so much outreach for more. So many people wanted different diseases, and we just couldn't spread that far. There wasn't enough space or mm-hmm. anything. So um, it started with AIDS back in the day, and then from, thirty from, years from, ago. From, from, from AIDS, it's it was thirty years already. Right. It spread to it was very small at that right, at that right, point absolutely. in time, and AIDS was a topic that nobody wanted to talk about. So that somebody would prepare special needs meals and you know be able to deliver these to the homes and then from AIDS it went from to, to muscular dystrophy and from muscular dystrophy to cancer and it it, it it's a, a total different approach than something like uh, a meals on wheels or anything like this uh, it's uh, all special diets um, the, when when somebody in in a household gets involved, the whole family gets sick, so the whole family gets fed, mm-hmm. and uh, and everything's disease specific. Every household right. gets. If you're on chemo, you need something bland. You know, if you have ALS, you need something soft. So eight million dollars was raised in the worst economy we've had in I don't know how long, and that building it was we th- was th- two years in March. Two or three. Yeah. And the amount of food that comes out of there is unbelievable. How many meals do you think you prepare? Oh, how many have we prepared? Didn't we just hit two million? Wow, two, two million. We had a big, so yeah. But the, you know, the the chart went like this until Straight. recently, and now it's and took going, off. Now, Straight now, up, <clears throat> right now they're really starting to add up quickly. And it's all delivered for free, prepared for free for the recipients. And delivered by volunteers. How many volunteers do you have? About 900. We know that aren't aren't there every day, but some might work for the summer. Some might work work a three-hour shift. That's how long it's going to take them to uh, to deliver what's in their station wagon or in the backseat of their car and to to run their route. And then they may not come back until the following Tuesday at 2 o'clock to kind of do the same thing and they 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 build a rapport with the people that they're delivering the meals to we've heard stories that in some cases that's the only people that uh, the people that, that they see that in are, a day that are or a week. being delivered oh, to really? see they, you know that's their support else that day and everybody gets a birthday cake hmm. every that's year wonderful. i didn't <laughs> be happy about that a couple of yeah, but, you know and i want to be Young people don't really understand. I mean, Alex and Andy, you don't really understand that that era that, that the Enfields are talking about. Um, what mom, mom will remember that when when AIDS was first discovered to be. I remember the, that when I was a kid, AIDS was a death sentence unless you were. Well, that, no, but I'm talking about when it initially hit. Oh, it was okay. the year you were born, actually. Yeah, it was 1986, 85. Well, it, it actually hit in like 82, but nobody yeah, really people heard. People were dropping about it. like flies in Manhattan. I remember that. Yeah. But to talk terrible. about the special, the special kind of people that would get involved with open arms back then, I had a very, very dear friend that contracted AIDS, and I got and Catherine will remember this that I got a call from his family, and they said, "Would you come over and help bathe him? Because no one will touch him." That's a true story. So all those people that were working for open arms at that time, they may have. They didn't know if they were going to get the disease or not. They had no idea. And that's how special those people were. That's mm-hmm. true. They didn't. I mean, they, no, they right. literally said, no one will touch him. You're right. So, you know, I, I went over and spent the last, uh, what, three days with him before he died. My. That was something else. He was a, uh, yeah, I, I, 
to, to go and see AIDS patients, and I, we're talking about 25 years ago, mm-hmm. 27 years ago now. Those are very, very special people. And everybody needs to understand how special those people are, too. How do we make a donation to Open Arms? <clears throat> you give the money to me. Oh. <laughs> promises. Did that work? Do not give it to them. Um, That's what I love about this podcast. You can be very serious, and then Don will go, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) But you can bounce around. I don't know. I like the part of doing the podcast a lot. I like a, a lot of things about doing the podcast, but we can talk about very serious subjects without being completely maudlin, and then you move on to the next, uh, because we've got to get you guys out of here in a couple minutes. But So how do you... Oh, let me mention one thing before you talk about how, uh, donations. The golf tournament was a ball last year. Went to the golf tournament last year. Well, thank year. you. Timmy Heron. <laughs> I told the story about a guy in Florida. Did you ever hear this story? Hmm. Very quickly. <clears throat> Timmy Heron calls me. He says, I'm playing in the Honda Classic. He said, come over and walk with me. And I said, okay. So we go over to the PGA National. I'm walking along with Timmy, and he gives me a big hug on the course. And he just Tim's a great guy, really good guy. So we're walking along, and this guy walks up to me. <clears throat> he said, uh, excuse me, could I have your autograph? And there were how many people standing there? A couple of hundred people standing around at, at the Open Arms Tournament last year. He said, may I have your autograph? I said, yeah, you must be from Minnesota. And he goes, yeah, I'm from Minnesota. So he's talking to me, and I'm signing an autograph and all this stuff. And it's the same thing that you're going, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> so I give him the autograph. And I said, well, thank you very much. He goes, nice to meet you, Mr. Heron. Oh, come on. <laughs> he thought it was Tim's dad. It's <laughs> an innocent mistake. Yeah. I look just like Carson Heron, man. <laughs> he thought it was Tim's dad. So I told that story at the Open Arms last year. But, yeah, Tim, uh, a great supporter, another guy. He works pretty hard. Yes, he does. He does. I just looked on openarmsminnesota.org, yes. and there's get meals, volunteer, and donate now. Big buttons. Can't miss them. Yep. Got it. Openarmsmn. Openarmsmn.org. Or Tom Bernard, <laughs> 708 I ask <laughs> Two, three, four. <laughs> oh, thanks, Bob. Oh, great. I we have to get security. <laughs> we have to run up. I know you guys have to get going, but I, I'm glad we get to talk about we have to have you back, though, because we need to talk more about it. What I like about that is, and, and it, I don't think it's a menace. What? Your, your wheels are turning so fast you can't even get it out. I know. That's how I am. It's <laughs> one thing that being around a lot of people in my career, to see someone, and again, to start with me, you just talk about the fact it's a $500 million company. So what do you do? You go over and help people with open arms. I mean, and you you do a lot of things for a lot of people that other people don't know about at all. Well, they secret don't. things. I meant so good. I do, I do secret things. <laughs> <laughs> I meant good things, not that other shit. <laughs> but you do, and people need to know about that. I think uh, I think it's a great thing. No question about it. Well, so. we thank you. You've been really You've awesome been, in helping us and. Supporting us. Thank your family. You're one of the reasons that tournament is as much fun as it is. You know, the f- first year we had Tim, the second year we had Tim and Tom, and Eric. We can't. Uh, mm-hmm. Don, we've got this guy, uh, and you may have seen bits and pieces of him on the Faraday Show. Um, his real name's Eric Nordby. He's a Minnesotan, and he's created a fictional character called Chance Manning. Mm-hmm. Chance Manning's a golf instructor and a real estate agent. 
So he'll be standing in a tee box at this tournament, and he's wearing knickers and the argyle vest and the tam on his head, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, he waits until someone hits the shot. And he says, oh, I, I, I can see immediately uh, what you've done wrong. And he's got this table of props, like the stuff that's sitting on the table here. He said, here, try this on. The guy says, well, that's an oven mitt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is funny. So the the mitt goes on, and surprisingly enough, in about half the situations, the guy hits the ball better than he did originally. (laughs) With the oven mitt. And it gets funnier, because when it doesn't work... Yeah, here, try this on. And the guy makes a swing, and the ball goes in the woods or goes in the water. Chances, let, let, let me look at, this is an XL. <laughs> <laughs> what tee was he on last year? Was that uh, the 10th? Where were we? 16. 16, there you yeah. go. Okay. At, uh, yeah, 16 tee. Probably same place this year. Same place this yeah. year? Well, that'll be good. That'll be fun. All right, you guys need to get to get out of here. I want you to get to get you out of here on time. Thanks, guys and girls. Thank you. Come Thanks back. for coming in. Come Good back to be again. Here. We can talk, yeah. we can talk more to. about a yeah. lot of different things. All Great right. to have you. We'll do it. Now go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, y'all. So sweet. That's the next T-shirt round. No, Bob and Lori. Isn't it I've true been that told to go fuck myself by Don Shelby. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> The listeners of this podcast are learning a part about of Minnesota that they'll never they've never known before. Minnesota mean. Thank you very much Hi. for having me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Unbelievable. Episode number 210, giving us one more episode than there are contendants in the Democratic primaries. Great clips this week. Laura Wasser, Anita Anand, and Bob Mfield. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next week.